0: This is Positive Parenting, parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author
1: and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brat. Hey there, welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat, the founder of MrDad.com. Well, you taught your child how to bake, how to drive, and how to behave. You're already a winner. And now, that child is having a baby of their own. Sure, you've got the cuddles, the clean diapers, and freshly baked cookies covered, but times have changed, and being a new grandmother, or grandfather for that matter, comes with new rules. The most important rule, of course, is that you need to follow the parent's lead. Are they going to be easygoing and just grateful that you bring the child back alive? Do they have strict rules about snacks and sleep schedules and organic groceries? Navigating a relationship with them is going to be crucial because they are, after all, the final authority, and they control access to your grandchild. At the same time, you're going to want to form a relationship with your child that's independent of that child's parents. And that's one of the many topics that we're going to be talking about in today's show with a couple of authors about a brand new book on everything that grandmothers need to know. So we'll be talking about technology. We'll be talking about who gets to be grandma and grandma from someplace else or grandma and grandmom. We'll be talking about and we'll be talking about some of the issues that can come up that are a little bit less nice to talk about things like adoption and divorce. Today's show is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union, which is proud to serve the armed forces, veterans, and their families. And if you're a member of the armed forces of the Department of Defense, they'd be proud to serve you, too. Federally insured by NCUA. And it all starts when Positive Parenting continues right after this.
0: Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council.
1: Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guests for this part of today's show are Joyce Eisenberg and Ellen Skolnick, who are the co-authors of Stuff Every Grandmother Should Know. Joyce and Ellen, thanks for joining us. Oh, you're Hi. welcome. So let's talk about something i guess it's interesting my my 16 year old opens my mail for me periodically because she always always thinks that there's something in there for her and the fact that my name is on a package is completely irrelevant to her so she opens this up and she says well grandmothers already had kids so by definition shouldn't they already know all this stuff without a book which i thought was kind of an interesting question in a way what do you say about that how, how, are, how are the things that grandmothers need to know different from the things that moms know?
3: Well, you know, we All right, well do you want me to start, Joyce? Yeah, you so go ahead. Our first thing is Joyce said, you know, we have to have a big caveat. Neither of us is a grandmother yet. Um, my son's getting married Labor Day weekend, and we're both moms of grown children who hopefully are on the way. Um, but we are moms, so your daughter's right. We started writing this book Um, As writers, researchers, and experienced moms. Um, But there are differences between being a parent and being a grandparent. Um, One thing that we universally heard from our friends who are grandparents and when we did research is um, you can do certain things and have fun and then you get to hand the children back at the end of the day or the babysitting.
1: That seems to be the big one.
3: All the grandmothers we interviewed, we
2: um, kind of narrowed it down to this and we made an acronym even, I-N-Y-K, it's not your kid, which means, um, you know, you have to follow the parents' rules and navigating your relationship with them is crucial because they're the final authority and they control access. And I had one mother, grandmother tell me, you know, her Kids were thrilled when she would babysit and just wanted the kid back alive. And hmm. other parents have very strict rules about sleep schedules and what food's allowed. So you just right. have to really um, follow the rules.
1: That's, a, in a way, it sounds like a, a tough line because you want, as a grandparent, and I say this as, as a non grandparent, so the three of us have, have that in common, uh, and I, although I'm not in quite as hurry, uh, much of a hurry as you are to have grandkids, but the, the line between. Follow, wanting to follow the the protocols that are laid down by the child's parents <coughs> so so the the grandparents' children, and also wanting to have a separate relationship with the child that's independent of the parents right, right.
3: well that's one that's one place where grandparents kind of have an advantage. Because you can do things on your own with the child that might not be part of their normal daily routine. Like it's okay for the kid to say, oh, when we go to grandmoms, we eat chocolate ice cream. Or when we go to grandmoms, we go to that different playground. And that's part of the fun of being a grandparent. It doesn't have to really be Um, you know, you don't have to stick to every rule because it's different when you're at grandma's house.
2: Yeah. And I also think just like parenting, if you let your adult children know you're willing to honor the rules and listen in general, you'd probably have enough leeway to make exceptions and indulge a bit, which is what every grandmother wants to do. So I think it's just being respectful.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Ellen, you mentioned a grandmom, which got me thinking about I it. actually one of the chapters in the book, but how do you pick the right name? Because it seems like there's some can be some squabbling <laughs> between the grandmothers or grandparents themselves if somebody wants to be just grandma and then somebody wants to be Grandma June or
3: grand okay, grandma. That's a whole chapter in our book, Armin. Uh, we got no, we got many pages out of that. Yeah, so let's um, so what do you think about that? How do you do as that? As much as you go on, I'm sorry. As much as you can prepare Um, people told us that, you know, they had a very specific name and then the baby could only say Gaga, Baba, and that became their name. So we know a lot of grandmoms whose name is Mimi, because that's what the kid could say. Um, and I know, uh, grandmom, both of them wanted to be Bubby. So one was Bubby New York and one was Bubby
4: Bethesda.
1: (laughs) Okay. And so... I guess you just go with what you can. But if somebody – how do you settle it between two people who want to just both be grandma? Mm,
3: I would say that's an instance where the grandmom has to be the flexible adult, either yeah. one, um, and, and come up with – go on, Joyce. I grew up with the grandmom Pearl and grandmom Sophie.
2: And as long as we, you know, added the name, we knew who was who. But it wasn't – it didn't matter. You know, it worked out fine. Right.
1: Okay. Well, though well, that's that's good because I, I mean something that I, I get questions about periodically is f- often about from from guys is is well I'm, my dad wants to be grandpa and my father in law wants to be grandpa and. I'm trying to avoid having a fight here, and you don't want to have them wrestle That's for it. F- yeah. You yeah.
2: Maybe you should claim it now, like, p- you know, put it in writing so you're you know planning ahead.
1: Or you could auction it off, I guess, and, and right? have a, make a contribution <laughs> right. to the child's 529 plan, and, and yeah. whoever, whoever wins. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and, you know, with so many fa- families that are blended or divorced, there's actually a glut of grandparents. So a child, instead of just having two grandmoms, might end up with four.
1: Right,
2: <laughs> I mean, got to work it out.
1: What about the other side of that? If a family adopts, and that I actually have been doing a lot of research into this for for a book I just did on on toddlers, and one of the things I found was was just fascinating was that in in many ways there, there's some research that shows that the child's adopting to the being adopted and and ability to cope with that. Has to do almost more with anything else, more than anything else, with the grandparents' acceptance of the adoption. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that?
3: Well, we we actually have a whole chapter on adoption too, and that's an instance where things may have changed since you were a mother um, with today's um, you know blended families, and there's much more. Um, cultural uh, differentiation and things. And we have a whole chapter that the grandparents should be supportive and the grandparents should be patient and be open. And one thing that has changed is using appropriate words, and it's really more than political correctness. Like, you know, you wouldn't introduce your husband as my bald husband. You don't (laughs) need to put in the adjective that it's an adopted child because when they're part of a family, it's a child. Yeah.
1: Well, there's that, but there's also that some some parents, and it may be changing a little bit over time, as you mentioned, things are changing with this, but some parents who adopt see adoption as a second best option, that they would have preferred to have had a child of their own, and, and that, that in a way, adoption is a failure. And they get over that, but there there can mm-hmm. be that lingering doubt there. And I think it would also be something with the grandparents as well, is that you... You were really hoping to have a, a biological child to continue the family name in that yeah. way.
2: You know, one of the things we wrote was that how important it is to be supportive and sensitive and that, that it may be considerate that, in, you know, it's a new branch to your family tree and be grateful that your adult child wants to reproduce and have a kid. You know, what, no right. matter how they get it, that that's like a blessing to you.
3: Right. So. And that goes for everything, you know, IVF and and medical procedures. All those things have changed in the years since we were parents and I think um the whole key to grandparents is to be supportive.
1: What do you think about technology and grandparents? I think grandparents get something of a bad rap with technology. As we have a, have a feeling that they don't know what they're doing. <laughs> Although my my girlfriend's father who's just turned 80 is all over Facebook and Right. But then there's my mother who can't remember sometimes how to set up her own blog, uh, which, right. and, which is a complicated thing, by the way. I think they made it unnecessarily complicated for her. <laughs> but it's we, how do you... We know
3: how to do a blog, Armin. Okay. So i was going to
1: say that
2: Ellen's mother-in-law, who is... For, 89, sure, 89. 89 is our biggest Facebook fan. <laughs> you know, so well. I feel like if you want to be in touch with your grandkids these days, you need to learn how to Skype and text... And Facebook, but also appropriately and not post photos of your grandchild unless it's okay with the parents. But I think you need it to get by. We
3: we have a whole chapter on that, and and Joyce is right. You have to use technology. Texting is that my dad, um, who's 86, communicates with my sons by text because they can look at a text whenever they want. They don't necessarily have to answer it. They can answer it later. You can say things you might not say out loud in a text. Um, but likewise, you have to be sensitive. You can't post an old picture of uh, when the child was born on Facebook without asking them.
1: Right. Well, that's a whole big thing that's coming out now is, is texting any, or posting any kind of pictures that kids really want right. to have a say in that. And I think grandparents may be even more proud of their mm-hmm. grandkids than parents are of their kids.
3: But that's I've an easy ex- one. Once you teach a grandparent, you know, that everyone can see that. Or, you know, please ask me before you put the picture of Little League up. I think if you're a modern grandparent, you have to deal with things like that.
1: I'm talking with Joyce Eisenberg and Ellen Skolnick, who are the co-authors of Stuff Every Grandmother Should Know. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking about everything grandma. I'm Armand Brock. You're listening to Positive Parenting. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armand Brod. If you're just joining us, talking with Ellen Skolnick and Joyce Eisenberg, who are the co-authors of Stuff Every Grandmother Should Know, I uh, want to keep on talking about grandma things, but I want to talk about some of the the things that might have changed since you, well, you, just the listener who may be a grandmother, will say not you since you weren't, uh, but things that may have changed in terms of, of the practical stuff that needs to be done. I mean, there's so many baby monitors for example or so many different diapers that you can tell but that there's a little uh, indicator that tells you when it needs to be changed or or the these you have to have an app to keep track of the baby's diaper production and i mean all of these (laughs) things that just weren't there and i'm not sure that they even they need to be there now but how do you how do you adapt to technology do you just do it or do you well, do you say you know we got along pretty well without this and we don't need it.
3: Right, Joyce, do you want to go to the? Uh, yeah, we well, wrote a so whole chapter on that. Yeah, kind but of I stuff. thought one
2: of the first things is in our introduction we said to um, grandmothers, just relax because if your child got old enough to have a child, you kept them alive. You know, right? So we our children slept went to bed on their stomachs. You yeah. know Back in the day, we didn't have um, cars. You know, there weren't so many car seats and seat belts, and we drank from the hose, and we all survived. But I don't think your adult child with a new baby wants to hear any of that. Right.
3: That's an example where you have to take the cue from the parent. You know, like a car seat is pretty much non-negotiable these days. A kid needs to be in a car seat, Absolutely. and that's easy enough. You put yeah. a car seat in your seat, but you don't have to use the video monitor to monitor every inch of their nap. You can, you know, walk down the hall and check on them. So...
1: You know, my parents were just telling me about when, when I was a kid in, back in Chicago years ago that, that they didn't have a baby monitor, but they would call a neighbor in the building when they were going to go have uh, <laughs> have dinner with the neighbor, Then they would just leave the phone off the hook. And, oh. you know, <laughs> so, <laughs> wow, yeah. that, was, that um, was the baby monitor.
3: And that's the kind of thing that today's parents would say, oh, my God, my parents are crazy. Can you imagine <laughs> they did that? But, yeah.
1: But your your point oh. is a very good one. And you know what? The answer is if you you somehow managed to survive until this moment and reproduce, so clearly we didn't do anything that had <laughs> any, any terrible long-term implications. Right.
2: Yeah. right. I think I picture, I remember when my son was little and he first time we stayed with my aunt and I did a three-page list of instructions like everything he needed to know or she needed to know and she looked at it and when we came back she laughed and said I didn't pay any attention I know how to raise a kid so I think you can discreetly do that as a grandparent
3: right as long as you keep safety in mind you know there's certain right. things right. food allergies and car seats and certain things that you you do need to know but then as an adult you have
1: leeway I want to get back to this point that I mentioned just a little bit ago about forming a relationship with your child, or with the grandchild. And that's such an important thing, and that's one where you're not going to necessarily be taking cues from the child's parents or your grandchild's parents. And how do you begin to form a relationship with the child so that it's unique and special and independent of, of the in-between generation?
3: Um, well, I'll, I'll start because we actually we wrote about this a lot. And one advantage grandparents have is that you don't really have to do discipline and you don't have to do the hard stuff. So you can be an additional supportive adult and a friend and a confidant to your grandchildren. Um, and we wrote a bit about um, uh, good questions to ask them instead of saying, what would you do at school Say to them, you know, what's your favorite TV show? Um, if you won a million dollars, what would you do? Who do you sit with at lunch? Questions that give more of a conversation starter. And we also have a whole section on getting to know once your kids, your grandkids are school age. Their interests, you know, is your grandchild a nature lover, is your grandchild a foodie? And then as a grandparent, you can indulge that, you know, and take them to a, an interesting Korean restaurant or cook together with them. Things that when you're a daily parent, you might not have the time or the inclination yeah. to do all the time.
2: And we also thought, you know, so much of what's old school is cool cool, cool again. Um, They're selling turntables at, like, Target and Walmart. And if you have a vinyl record in the attic, like of the Beatles, you can introduce your grandchild to it. You can do, um, like, macrame is back in again. Lots of things – grandparents did as children um, are back. And you can take your kid to a pinball arcade or thrift store shopping and just kind of introduce them to what your life was like, too.
3: And things that they don't do on a daily basis, play with a deck of cards, you know, old old school, Joyce was talking about old school stuff, things that wouldn't occur to modern parents, you might know because you're a little older.
1: And what about things in your own home, things like childproofing and i mean cuz a lot of grandparents have got a lot of well I don't want to call it old stuff we'll call it vintage stuff <laughs> that that's not necessarily we, call it tchotchkes. Tchotchkes. we talk about that you know yeah. how to
3: make how to make your house safe and have a room that the kids can play in and do stuff and equipment you should keep you know of course it's easier if you keep a high chair in your house when the kids are little because then they can eat and but you can do certain things that's another place where you have to draw the line at what's dangerous you know a a tv on the wall versus uh fragile and you, you just have to do a minimum of making your house safe for kids
1: oh yeah absolutely i mean certainly Plug up outlets and and that kind of thing. If what you mm-hmm. what you would do for especially with little kids, with older kids you don't have to quite worry about it so much. But it's something that if you're your grandparents, so you probably haven't had little kids in your house for fifteen twenty years, right. and right. it's a. There, but you, you can realize make it how easier much by
3: only plugging the outlets. You know, maybe in the room where you're going to get on the floor and play games with them or play toys with them. You don't necessarily have to baby-proof your bedroom if you close the door and the, and the little kids don't go in there. You can, you know, make it easier. But
1: now, we've talked some about taking your cues from your child as the grandparent, the the mm-hmm. parent of the parent of the youngest one. And, but what if you really disagree? Do you feel that you have a, a right or an obligation to say something that I, I think you're doing this wrong or I think it's just it's, – or is that even <laughs> I'm, I'm possible? La- I'm
2: laughing first because so I? I know – well, one rule is you should never – like, if let's say it's your son is um, who had the child. You should never talk to your son about things his wife, the mother of the child's doing wrong. Like, I know that's a no-no. And I know my um, – Mom used to send me articles all the time, you know, just sort of like anonymous, but I knew yeah. it was her, and it was really annoying. So yeah. it's a, what you said. It's a really difficult subject. Right, and you just. I'm have not to sure do it. I have an answer.
3: Yeah, you have to do it gently. We have a whole funny chart in the book. You know, fifteen things you should never say, and it's things like. You know, the baby doesn't need organic fruit. We never ate organic fruit. So that's like a minor thing that really you shouldn't raise as a complaint. Yeah. But you have to decide, you know, is it a safety issue? Is it something you feel strongly that the child should have music lessons or or can you live without a fight?
1: I guess that's it, yeah, is can you live without a fight? That's probably the <laughs> the big thing. I want to get back to something that's, a, it's, you mentioned divorce, but you mentioned it from a different perspective, that sometimes when divorces and blended families are coming, you can end up with more than just the normal amount of grandchildren, so mm-hmm. four per, per child. Um, right. What if you have divorces and the divorce is an unpleasant one, and you as the grandma are at risk of being eliminated from the kid's life, which mm-hmm. I know happens. How, how do you, mm-hmm. w- what can you do? to maintain a relationship with the child when, the, when one of the children's parents, whether it's the mom or the dad, doesn't mm-hmm. want you involved.
2: I actually had that experience because my mom died when I was young, and I, my dad remarried, and my stepmom was not interested in me seeing my family. Um, and my grandmother would send letters. Like, that's right. one thing she did. I did get them. Um, and it, there wasn't much that could be done until I was in college, and I reestablished the relationship.
3: Right. I was going to say, with younger with younger children, it's hard to circumvent that. But once the child gets to school age, you can always send cards, send letters, send stickers in the mail, send gifts so that the child knows you exist. And then as the child gets older, you know, you can do Skype and text and, and arrange visits. Once they're in high school, you could possibly talk about it with the child independently. You would come and visit or something. But you have to try to stay in touch um, in any way you can while they're little.
1: only have just a couple seconds left. What's each of your favorite things to do with a grandchild? Or you think will be your favorite thing to do when you have a grandchild? <laughs> I
3: was going to say, <laughs> I have to live through my son's wedding next week first. <laughs> um, go on, Joyce. Um, I, I w- to just take walks um, in the park,
2: just like spend time outdoors, because that's my mm-hmm. favorite thing to do.
3: That's good. And I'm a good cook. I've already, m- two of my three kids are great cooks, so I like to cook together and share That's recipes. And, and then at the end, you have a delicious way to sit and relax and eat something together.
1: <laughs> Joyce Eisenberg and Ellen Skolnick are the co-authors of Stuff Every Grandmother Should Know. Thank you very much, both of you. Thanks. Well,
3: thank Thanks, you.
2: Carmen. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks.
1: Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and it's time for an Ask Mr. Dad segment. Dear Mr. Dad, my wife is due in about two months, and we're worried about our dog, a 120-pound Bernese Mountain dog who's less of a pet and more a part of the family. We keep hearing that it's dangerous to have a giant dog around a newborn and that we should start looking for a new home for him. Is it? And is there some way to prepare our dog and keep our baby safe? Unfortunately, there's no way to predict with 100% accuracy how animals are going to react in any given situation, but you can get some hints by asking yourself these questions about your pet. What is the dog's personality? Is he aggressive or territorial? Does he growl or bite? Does he jump on you, the furniture, or guests? Has he spent time with children? Does he like children? How protective is he of his toys? Could he possibly confuse a neatly wrapped-up baby with a chewable toy? Does he bark when he wants attention? Does he understand and obey basic commands? I'm sure you can figure out which of these questions need a yes and which need a no. I'd also check out the American Temperament Test Society's website, which is atts.org, for ballpark info on your dog's breed. But regardless of how much you love your dog and how high his test scores, there's always some risk. According to MaxLawC.com, of the 4.5 million people who get bitten by dogs every year, more than half occur in children under 10, and most of those are children under 5. About 70% of those bites are to the face and happen during feeding, petting, or playing. Most of those dogs live in the victim's home and have no history of biting. That's the bad news. The good news is that there are ways to reduce those risks. And the time to start is right now, long before the baby arrives. The goal is to get the dog acclimated to the changes that are going to happen, some of which he may not be thrilled with. That way, he won't blame the new baby for ruining his life, which is exactly what most first-born human pups think when they're confronted with a baby who knocks them out of the center of the universe. Some of the changes will be fairly easy. For example, you can download some baby cries from the Internet and play them every few hours to get the dog used to the sound. If you've got friends or relatives with infants or small children, start inviting them over so the dog can check out what a baby looks like, acts like, sounds like, and smells like. Next, set up the baby's room now and let the dog check out the crib, changing table, diapers, wipes, etc. If you've already got a stroller, take it with you when you're walking the dog. You want to get him used to walking beside it without trying to drag it into the middle of the street. While you're doing all this, you'll also want to be getting your dog used to the new rules of the house. Again, long before the baby arrives. For example, if he sleeps on your bed, you'll probably want to break that habit. Same goes for barking indoors, jumping on the furniture, or jumping on people. If you're able to do the re-educating, great. If not, you may want to hire a dog trainer who's got experience preparing dogs for babies. Michael Wambacher's book, Good Dog, Happy Baby is a great resource, as is Please Don't Bite the Baby by Lisa Edwards. And for the pure entertainment value, just check out Good Dog, Carl and the other books in that series by Alexandra Day. If you've got a comment or a suggestion or a question for us here at Positive Parenting, you know you can send it to us through our website, MrDad.com. We'll be back next week with another brand new show for you, but don't go yet because there's more of this show coming right up.
0: More with Mr. Dad, Armin brought after this. From the MrDad.com radio network.
5: 180 over 111, and I had a stroke. When I woke up, I couldn't speak or walk. 145 over
3: 92, and then I had a heart attack.
5: 182 over 100, and I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest. And then a stroke. Everything changed. It felt like my life was over.
0: This is what high blood pressure sounds like. You might not feel its symptoms, but the results from a heart attack or stroke are far from invisible or silent. 150 over 90, and I had a stroke. If I would have followed a treatment plan, I would not be in this situation. 180 over 110, and I had a stroke. And I'm 33, so I never see this coming. If you've come off your treatment plan, get back on it. Or talk with your doctor to create an exercise, diet, and medication plan that works for you. Go to loweryourhbp.org. Head to toe, everything's changed. Head to toe. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. Now, get ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brott from the MrDad.com Radio Network.
1: Heather, welcome to the second part of today's Positive Parenting Show. I'm Armand Broad. Thanks for staying with us. We've got a great show coming up for you. Since 1982, millions of parents and educators have turned to Jim Treleese's beloved classic, The Read Aloud Handbook, to help countless children become avid readers through awakening their imaginations and improving their language skills. Jim Treleese was a guest on this show and had a wonderful conversation back when the book was in maybe its third or fourth edition. Now, Jim Treleese has retired, and sadly, but the book itself is very much alive and is now in its eighth edition and we've got the new editor of the book who's going to be telling us more about the benefits, the rewards, and the importance of reading aloud to the current generation of children of all backgrounds and she's going to be able to identify and update a lot of the research that's been done in the many years since the first edition of jim's book came out as well as give us recommendations for how to read, what to read, when to read, how long to read, pretty much everything there is to know about reading to kids and why you want to do it. Because it's not only good for your kids, it's great for you as well. I'm Armin Brott. We'll start talking about reading to kids and the important difference that it makes to everybody concerned when Positive Parenting continues right after this.
4: 911. What is your emergency? My kid shot himself. No. All right. Where's the wounds? 911. What's your emergency? Please help my son shot his brother. 911. What is your emergency? Okay. 911. Please state your
0: emergency. Every day, eight kids and teens are unintentionally killed or injured by loaded and unlocked guns.
4: It wasn't locked. It wasn't locked. It wasn't locked. It wasn't locked.
0: Learn how to make your home safer at endfamilyfire.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and End Family Fire. My name is Dale Pazinski. I volunteer with United Way to help the homeless in my community learn computer skills and build a basic resume. I don't just wear the shirt. I live it. Give, advocate, volunteer. Live United. Go to liveunited.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council.
1: At parenting. I'm Armin Brat, and my guest for this part of today's show is Cindy Georges, who's the co-author of Jim Treleese's Read Aloud Handbook, the 8th edition, if you can believe that. Cindy, thanks so much for joining us.
5: Thank you so much.
1: Well, I'm really glad you're here, because the topic of reading and reading to kids is something that we talk about a lot on the show, and it's something I'm, I'm very committed to having read to three kids from the moment they were born until the moment they squirmed and wouldn't come back. Uh, so I'm I'm glad to have you on. What has Thank you. What has changed over the last, say, twenty years? And it sounds like you've been doing. You you were just talking before we went on the air about interviewing authors, and you've been involved in reading to kids and in and, and children's literature for a long time. It, it, has anything really changed over the last twenty years?
5: Well, I think what's changed most recently is, of course, technology and children's access to digital devices. And um, while that's wonderful and um, certainly piques curiosity and interest and um, entertains and engages children, um, I think they're also um, being handed to children without adult involvement, parent or educator involvement. And I, I see that as the biggest change is that even though there are a lot of stories that are available um, on, on digital devices, on iPads and things, they, we still need the interaction um, between parent and child um, in, in reading those stories. It, it shouldn't be a device to just um, kind of—I hate to say—I don't want to use the word babysit, but but just to entertain children, but without any kind of adult involvement.
1: Oh, right. You don't want to just park them in front of, of a book any more than you'd want to park them in front of a TV program, or pro- I guess probably a little bit more than you'd want to park them in front of a TV program. But, so uh, talk about some of the benefits that there are to kids and also to parents or whoever it is, the adult or the older child for that matter, who's doing the reading.
5: Uh, the benefits to the reader? Well, to um, the
1: reader and the, the listener to both
5: reader okay well i mean there is a a lot of benefits first of all just that whole opportunity to bond um, between parent and child or or teacher and child Um, just creating that relationship that bonding relationship reading loud entertains kids it reassures them Um, it informs or explains different things um, about uh, our world um, it also arouses curiosity, um, you know, looking at a book and, and learning about things. And it inspires kids maybe to to um, do something or to, to be kind or to go into sports. Um, but also there's all those educational um, advantages of building vocabulary, uh, creating background knowledge about a variety of different topics and subjects. Um when we read aloud to kids we're providing a reading model on how to read our fluency our expression so we're a great reading model um and through all of this what we want to do is inspire kids to want to read and to show them that reading is a pleasurable activity and that they want to do this themselves when i would read to my first graders uh, a book and I, you know, put it, you know, up to the side. When I was done, the children immediately wanted to read that book because I've endorsed that book. I've said, "Wow, this is a great book." You've heard this book, and now they wanted to revisit the the story on their own. So, um, there's so many benefits and advantages of reading aloud to children mm-hmm. of all ages, um, and those are just. Kind
1: of a few, right? And and I think we should should mention that, as you mentioned, literacy and vocabulary and kids who are read aloud to are better prepared for school when they finally do get into school. Uh, I think that the whole idea of getting kids interested in reading, and I know that it, became, it was a big thing when the Harry Potter books first came out, that that was considered to be one of the the big advantages. Was all of a sudden, boys who some of whom are reluctant readers. And are lagging behind girls in, in reading anyway, all of a sudden became big readers, and they were whipping through these books, and then there were other books that came along after that that, that have helped that. But getting kids interested in reading is such an important thing, as you mentioned, also because of the, the devices, and I think kids are reading less generally. So it, it's such a critical thing, and to start with young kids is important. So when do you start? What's your theory on that one?
5: Well, you can start um, when the baby's in utero. I mean, you can start um, reading aloud before the baby's born. There's a number of um, research studies that have shown that um, babies in the womb um, start to to hear their their mother's voice um, and um, associate that with um, pleasure and um and so that they can recognize um, their mother's voice. But certainly, once a child is born, and I think I read one time in one of your columns that um, you, somebody said, Well, you know, why should I read aloud to a baby? A baby doesn't understand the book. and um, But they do understand that closeness, that bonding. They start looking at um, your pictures and, and, and starting to see. Colors and we start pointing to things and naming things. So we need to start reading aloud immediately, and it's such a an amazing opportunity. I I have an example in the book. There was a movie, Three Men and a Baby, and um, Tom Selleck's character is reading aloud to the baby that's been you know left on their doorstep, and his roommate comes in and says, Why why are you reading aloud to this baby? You know. But what are you reading? And he says, well, I'm reading this article about boxing. And he says, why? And he said, because it doesn't matter what I'm reading. It just matters that I'm having this time with this child, essentially, and bonding with this baby. And so we just have to remember that, too, that um, it's, it's more important that we read aloud than early on than maybe what we read aloud, but just having that wonderful experience. But let's start early, and let's continue as long as we possibly can.
1: Well, let's talk about that, since that's the other end of it. And I mentioned that I I did it until my kids wouldn't let me do it anymore, and they'd be squirming and running around. There's a stage in there where where my, my middle daughter was a big squirmer, And I continued to read to her when she would get up and she was maybe, I don't know, five or something like that. She'd get up and she'd walk around the room and she'd act like she wasn't paying attention. But if I made a mistake and I started to make mistakes on purpose, she would correct me from across the room. Or if I left out a word or said something in in, in an accent that I hadn't used in previous editions when I had read it to her before with different accents or things, she she would correct me. So the fact that they're squirming around doesn't necessarily mean that they aren't able to be read to. Uh, you don't have to have them in your lap, right?
5: Oh, exactly. Um, you know, they may be walking around, rolling around, sitting under a table, whatever, um, but they are listening, and um, sometimes I think that frustrates us as parents and, and teachers that they're not sitting quietly, and, and um, we're thinking that they have to be focused in Um Really, they aren't listening, and we need to remember that, that it's, it's not always um, the experience we create in our mind. It's the experience that we create with the child um, that is, is making the difference. So yeah. um, I don't think we should give up. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, we should never give up and thinking they're not listening anymore, and sometimes it's just changing the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, or then the the story or or maybe um, it's too long or let's read some poetry or read a few pages of a nonfiction book um, pull out um, a comic book or a graphic novel, so I think sometimes we have to vary the the materials and um and and if it's not working, you know let it go don't don't drag a child through it Um I have a friend, Scott Riley, who was reading aloud to his teenage daughter, and um, he thought she was losing interest, and he said, do, do, do you want to just you know stop reading this book? And she said, no, no, I I, I need to know what happened. <laughs> so we also should talk to kids yeah. about, are you enjoying the book? What about it um, is kind of capturing your interest? Um, and so I, I think that we just have to remember that uh, as we, as, you know, especially with parents, that... And just because your child isn't sitting there quietly doesn't mean that he or she isn't listening and isn't really being impacted by the story. Because probably you also have had experiences, too, where you don't even think that um, something has stayed with them. And then maybe a week or two weeks or a month later, something pops up um, about that. You're like, oh, you you really were with me. Uh, So um, I think we just need to remember that.
1: I'm talking with Cindy Georges, who's the author of Jim Trelease's Read Aloud Handbook. It's the 8th edition. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to keep talking to Cindy about reading and uh, continue about how to do it exactly and then what kinds of things, how to pick things, and a lot more about reading to kids and being a reader and what it's like to to be read to. I'm Armand Brock, and you're listening to Positive Parenting. Hi, we're the Goo Goo Dolls. If you're just joining us, I'm Armin Brott, and talking with Cindy Georges, who's the co-author with Jim, I guess, is it the author or co-author of Jim Trelease's Read Aloud Handbook, the eighth edition. And we were just talking about reading, and you were saying some very interesting about paying attention to to what the child is interested in, and and want to go to the to the very youngest audiences. I think a, a mistake that parents make, and I I think I, I made this mistake certainly several times myself, and before I learned about it probably by reading one of the early editions of this book, uh, that you don't have to finish the book, that you need to pay attention to cues from your infant that the child is not interested anymore because you want to make sure that reading is associated with pleasure and fun and enjoyment, and if you make them sit there until you're done, it can be associated with, with discomfort and unpleasantness. Yes, definitely, and just
5: um, in, in this- I think you raised a really good point. You know, just take the cue from your child. If they're just not engaged, let it go. And we'll build that kind of reading stamina over a period of time. Maybe when you first start reading aloud, maybe it's just a, you know, maybe it's 10 minutes or maybe it's five minutes. And and just as we continue reading, um, spending more time, especially if they're engaged with the story, if you're using, um, you said, Sometimes when you read aloud, you use, you know, different voices and, you know, different accents and, um, you know, reading that story with some enthusiasm and, and excitement and and don't ever feel embarrassed that you're doing that. Sometimes I'll have parents go, oh, I'm, I'm a little self-conscious when I start, you know, reading aloud and I'm using different voices and it's like, that's what gets kids engaged. So think also about how you're reading aloud that book and pre-read a book to Possible, um, or if it kind of is slowing down a little bit, and, and maybe the child's losing some interest, maybe read ahead a little bit and see. Well, maybe I can kind of skip over a little bit of it, or, or just not finish it at all. Too is always an option.
1: How do you go about selecting the right books for? the right kids i mean you mentioned the anecdote from three men and a baby with tom Selleck's character reading a bo- an article about boxing and and pointing out very correctly that it doesn't matter for for very little babies what you read it's all about the tone of voice and the the being next to each other and maybe the skin to skin contact or just the baby hearing your voice but at some point it it does begin to make a difference what you read because you want to read not just for tone of voice but for Hey, this is what little sheep look like, or puppies, or kittens, or identifying things and colors and shapes. So, th- how do you know when the child is ready for introducing actual information as opposed to just the sound of the voice?
5: Um, I think you just keep trying different books. Um, you know, early uh, as as um, as a child starts pointing at things or or um, kind of maybe recognizing things, I think you just start you start trying them. Um, You know, board books are so great, especially those that, board books kind of have a laminated surface, so, you know, when a baby will maybe start chewing on it. Um, So those are always good, but select books early on that have very bright colors, that don't have a lot of objects on a page. If you want your child to maybe start identifying, they start speaking, they're they're starting to speak, you know, definitely start choosing books that um, might have, common objects on the pages, an apple, a dog, a cat, um, and and use those types of books. Again, listen to your child. Your child will tell you so much if you're just paying attention. But then um, also... I had a colleague actually stop by my office this morning, and, and um, her baby is about six months old, and she said, you know, I don't know if I could read one more board book um, which is one word on a page. And so, you know, I, I recommended, well, start thinking about books, Mother Goose Rhymes are great, rhyming um, books, um, Mem Fox is a great author for that, Kevin Henkes, um, that have a little bit more um, simpler book, picture books. But yet they have some great lyrical language, Candace Fleming. I mean, there's a lot of those authors that we can start reading those picture books. And again, as I said earlier, let's start building that reading stamina Mm -hmm. that they're able to age a little bit longer.
1: And how do you explain the fact that sometimes they want to have the same book read 300 times? Oh. I mean, the the necessity for variety (laughs) is there, but there's also the necessity for mindless repetition. In, in, yes. in the, the view of the adult.
5: Well, is in the view of the adult, but revisiting that book um, brings security. They know the book. They know the story. They now say they're reading the book, and, and in a way they are because they know how the story unfolds. They, they know. They start learning those early literacy skills that print works, you know, from left to right. The, how a book is held, how we, you know, we turn the page. But it's that that sense of comfort and and knowing and security and enjoyment too. I mean, Brown Bear, Brown Bear, um by Bill Martin Jr. I mean that's, I'm sure a book too you've probably read, or Good Night Moon. But there's something wonderful about, I mean, as adults we watch movies, you know, multiple times. You're to a song over and over. So it's kind of that same idea, something that we've enjoyed and they just want to revisit. But it's also that they also feel that they are being able to be successful in reading that aloud as well.
1: I was curious, in this edition of the book, and I I must admit that I haven't seen the the seventh or sixth edition. I I think I skipped a few there. But I noticed, I think, a new section on dads and the important role that dads are playing. Why did you want to focus on that?
5: I'm so glad you've mentioned that. Dads are so important in reading aloud and with literacy development for their children. We don't have enough dads who are reading to their children, and there's been several research studies recently that show that the impact that dads have on their child's, both boys and girls, literacy development, is actually a little bit more, um, a little bit stronger than even with with mothers. And I know that you talked about this one time uh, in that children don't have a lot of men as teachers during their preschool or elementary mm-hmm. school years or even sometimes into middle and high school. So um, boys and girls are not, but particularly boys, are not seeing reading as a masculine activity. Um, and so that kind of is influencing what is happening. But also dads read different books, and they also read books differently. So um, oh, I, I'll just use the example of Diary of a Wimpy Kid. Um, it sounds a lot better when a dad reads that book <laughs> uh, about yeah. this middle school, you know, child's experiences. And um, it sounds different when, a, when dad reads it than when mom reads it. And sometimes dads love to, you know, read funny books. Um, and I, they're, just, they're just different selections, so I cannot express enough how important that dads read aloud to their children and to, to really impact their, their yeah. literacy development, yeah. but also, more importantly, to also create that amazing, wonderful bond um, between parent and child um, yeah. so that, and associating reading as a pleasurable activity for them as well as for their child.
1: And also, again, to get back to that relationship thing, and, and you mentioned in in that chapter some uh, two areas that I've talked about also in, in, in the work that I've done: military dads and dads who are in prison. And in, in both of those situations, prison and military, the the population is predominantly male, and this predominantly male who happen to have long periods of time where they're separated from their children. And so, there are organizations united through through reading is one of them. It does work with military, and they have the dads record themselves reading stories, and then they make sure that the kids get those stories so that the kids have a way of interacting with dad even when he's not there. And, of course, that works just as well for moms. But because we're you know, talking about prisons or, or military, it does tend to be more male. But the idea of reading even when you're not physically there can help uh, wonderful do wonderful things for the relationship.
5: And I love the United Through Reading program where they do record the book. They usually send the book along with the recording. And I hadn't thought about. I thought, well, why didn't they just do more of a you know, video chat or something like that. And it, it was because, you know, they're in different time zones and, you know, they're, they can't always make that connection. And also, when the child has the book and then the recording of their, their father or, or mother reading it, they can revisit it multiple times. And that voice is always there for them to, to listen to. And I also encourage uh, fathers who, who may not be, you know, living in the, the home. Um, or Travels for Business, to also always have a book with them that, you know, when they FaceTime or or video chat with their child at night, read aloud a couple pages. Keep that connection going, Um, and it's just really important to do that.
1: Wonderful advice, and there's a lot more wonderful advice in the book. Jim Trelease's Read Aloud Handbook, and it's written by Cindy Georges. It's G-I-O-R-G-I-S if you're looking for it. Cindy, thanks so much for joining us. Great to have you.
5: Great. Thank you so much.
1: And before we go, a special thanks to Navy Federal Credit Union for supporting today's show. They proudly serve the Armed Forces, Department of Defense, veterans, and their families, federally insured by NCUA.